Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that has returned from the holidays thinner than normal because we spent the whole time hungry for football. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport, Radio and Give Me Sport. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA Licence intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Reaper, and uh, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Um, hope everyone had happy a lovely break. I know uh, that, that we certainly did, but it's an interesting time to take a break because we have had uh, three different Premier League uh, game weeks pass us by in between now and then. Lots and lots of interesting stuff has happened uh, and lots of sort of go it's over. True. I, I kind of want to take a big step back, not just in light of that, but also in light of the fact that we have now passed the midweek or the midway, I should say, point of the season. Um, Every team has played at least 19 games. I think most have played 20, with Brighton, West Ham, who who are playing this evening, uh, and City and Brentford, who had a a game um, sort of delayed because of City playing in the Club World Cup. But everyone's played at least half the amount of games. It's an interesting point to sort of look at the table and look at some of the football we've seen so far this year and do a bit of a review, because... Obviously, the big change now is the January window, uh, an even bigger change that's unique to this season is we've got both AFCON and the Asian Cup, which is going to inform a lot of things at the back end of the season. But it'll be interesting mm. to see what we've learned so far and, and what we're going to learn sort of moving forward and how that can inform us. The first thing I'd sort of say to you, I, I was thinking about this before we, we sat down today. Is it just me or does it feel like these seasons go by quicker and quicker? Maybe it's just because I'm getting older and my sort of sense of time is relative, but it feels like this season started six weeks ago. How are we already at the halfway point? It's quite baffling. I know what you mean. I think, um, yeah, I guess the other part is that they really pack the the games in at the start of the season. You know, I think um, there are five months left in, in 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 the calendar season and we've only had maybe four, four months. So they, they pack in kind of half the games in four months. And then the second half is a little bit lighter um, with, with about five months left to go. I, I think that's on, on the eye test, roughly accurate. So I think, I think it does go at a, at a speedier rate um, in the first half of the season, but I agree with you. I feel like the joy you know, and this, you may not agree with this, but I also feel like when I was younger, the international breaks used to be so long and I used to get so bored sitting around waiting for them to be done. And now it just kind of feels like they're, they're done in a blip. No, I, I think they stretch out longer than ever because my patience for international football gets less and less each year. So they feel longer to me. Um, <laughs> That's also true. Well, look, we're halfway through the season now, um, even though that seems, you know, massively rapid. Um Lots of stuff to talk about. It's shaping up to be quite an exciting season. We've had for the last few seasons, uh, you know, the, the first thing to sort of look at is the last few seasons we've had mostly City and Liverpool and then last season City and Arsenal sort of challenging for the title. Uh, but as it stands now, we've got maybe five different teams that are still in the mix. Obviously, you've got uh, Liverpool who are at the top of the league, 45 points, haven't lost a game yet. Aston Villa in second at the halfway point of the season. I think most people definitely thought they would have fallen away long before then. Um, And then City, who've come all the way back up to third, despite a a bad start. Arsenal, who've dropped from... (laughs) They were top at Christmas, and they were fourth on New Year's Day, which is like, that's so... That takes some arsenaling. Um, And then Spurs as well, who (laughs) have had this massive injury crisis, but find themselves just one point behind Arsenal and one point outside of the top four. So really are not ones to be counted out just yet. I know we, we all sort of thought they might be when they had that big, you know, Van der Ven and Madison and double sending off game but actually there's still very much a real chance that they, they could be in contention um so I guess I want yeah to just absolutely start I mean with... I think um 
So just to jump in to add a, a tiny bit of, of caveat to that, as you mentioned at the beginning, Man City do have one game in hand, so that would put them second if they were to win it. Um, and one thing that's also interesting is that the gap between Arsenal and Spurs is, is only growing shorter, smaller, because Spurs probably have the best run of form of anyone in the top five, and Arsenal probably have the worst run of form of anyone in the top five, having lost the last couple of games. Absolutely. Well, maybe let's start with Arsenal then as we jump into these, you know, having a look at some of the teams. I want to talk about some of the teams at the bottom of the table. I want to talk about some of the teams that have lost their way and sort of sitting in the mixed veg. But maybe let's start with the team that are currently fourth, but managed to sort of go all the way from first to fourth in the space of six days. Um, Arsenal, it's obviously tight at the top at the moment. There are five points between them and, and Liverpool, two points between them. Uh, and, and Aston Villa and their level on points with City still lots of football to play so not a complete disaster as I know many sort of Arsenal fans and many sort of media outlets are sort of portraying this as but it is key to talk about where things have gone wrong here because Arsenal have had the same issues for quite a while now and I don't know if you remember all the way back before all the mulled wine and, and, and mince pies that we talked last <laughs> when I sort of was discussing the Brighton 2-0 and how I thought that was a really bad performance from Arsenal in terms of like efficiency and mm. then you know some people go oh well they won 2-0 and they did all this but actually it really sort of it, it hinted at some of the problems they have underneath and that's what's happened in the following two games against Fulham uh, or against West Ham rather where they had 30 shots uh, but couldn't manage to find a goal uh, and then against Fulham where they managed to find a goal very early on but then didn't have any sort of credible threat going forwards after that this is a team that is absolutely bereft in terms of the goal scoring ability and it seems, seems weird to say because they were a team that were pretty good at that last season and they seem to have sort of lost that in sort of exchange for a little bit more defensive solidity but now they seem to have lost that as well and the problem is when they do go behind or when they go you know they concede two you kind of watch Arsenal and you go this isn't a team that's going to score two back this isn't going to be a team that's going to score three and win it so when you watch games like the West Ham game or the Fulham game you kind of know sat there watching it that it's already a foregone conclusion because Gabriel Jesus isn't going to pull his socks up. Eddie and Kess is not going to pull his socks up. Gabriel Martinelli is having, by his standards, a really, really poor season. And even Bakayo Saka has fallen away a little bit. I think the big stat that everyone's been talking about is that Jared Bowen has as many goals as their front three combined of, of Martinelli, Jesus and Saka, which is quite damning. Um, obviously, Jared Bowen has been having a great season, but one West Ham player has got more than the entire front line of Arsenal or, or had more before they played Fulham and Saka's goal, I think, drew them level. Yeah, I mean, that that is a pretty damning stat. Um, and I think, well, when it comes to Arsenal, they just don't have enough star players to be like City, whereby it's almost a statistical like impossibility or at least an improbability that one of their key players or someone you can bring on from the bench will not have a very good game and like rise up and, and take it by the scruff of the neck. Arsenal don't have that. They rely on a couple of really important players. They did through the whole of last season and that will always come unstuck. It's exactly what happened with Liverpool a couple of years ago. It's not been quite as dramatic. They're still doing well. But these are young players who were performing amazingly through an incredible run through the whole team last year. And you can't expect them to maintain that level of of excitement and adrenaline and just performance. Um, so I, I think it was always going to happen if they didn't strengthen enough. And I think you're right that there is a little bit more defensive stability overall. Um, I think you can probably attribute a good amount of that to the addition of Declan Rice in the middle of the park. 
but you need to constantly be improving your team. And that is not what they did um, in the attacking third. They didn't buy a striker, as we talked about. And the problems that are presenting now are exactly the problems that, that kind of you mentioned in, in the, the Brighton game, which was in the middle of December, and that we saw at the start of the year against Nottingham Forest. You know, they, they didn't close out a game. They, they didn't take it by the scruff of their neck. Um, they won it 2-1. That was in the opening game of the season. But they just didn't look good for it. And a lot of the time, they don't look good for it. They don't kill games. They don't dominate, apart from dominating the possession stats. And the, the most worrying thing about this West Ham game is that it was like 75% possession to 25%, and they created barely anything. Um, you know, a lot of shots, but just no real punch, no real bite. Um, and as you say, West Ham, their striker has been much more prolific um, in, in a much better run of form. And you've got to hope that, uh, you know, um, the players almost don't turn up in January because we will continue to have this problem. They need to I, sign I think that's them. the silver lining, isn't it? Is that if you had to pick a time to have these two really bad performances and sort of not get away with it, it would be just before January. So I guess that's the silver lining. But I, I agree ex- with exact with what you've said exactly. I think last year Arsenal got away with not having a striker who scored a lot of goals because Martinelli and Saka and Erdegaard were all in brilliant like firing form. And I think all three of those players now, whether it is because they've been playing every single game week in week out, or or certainly in Saka's case, or they're just knackered, or, or it's the emotional tie none of them are at that same level um you know Martinelli as I mentioned has two league goals Saka if you take away the penalties I think has four uh, and has six with the penalties so it's not the same sort of level that we were getting from them last season and when they aren't performing to that same level it becomes incredibly apparent that those issues are there and, and I almost wonder now I, I, I mean, think we, um, you know, if, if oh, sorry go on no, I was just going to say, I almost wonder now if it's one of those things that we'll look back on and go, Arsenal were really close to winning the league last season. Was this maybe a case where you needed to go in with, you know, a couple of tiny little surgical alterations, maybe get some backup players to reduce the the impact of, of game time on someone like a Bakayo Saka? Yes, get that striker as well, but not necessarily blow loads of money on players like, for example, Kai Havertz and David Raya. Instead, sort of do little fine-tuning areas elsewhere because... Declan Rice has obviously been fantastic and he's you know been brilliant in terms of shoring up their defensive uh, capabilities. He's also scored a couple of really important goals, which is not something he did before. But then you look at what some of the money elsewhere... Like, there were issues at Arsenal last season that were significantly bigger than Aaron Ramsdale. Aaron Ramsdale obviously had his moments where he had lapses in concentration. The Southampton game comes to mind, for example. But I don't think anyone except Mikel Arteta was looking at that team and going... Aaron Ramsdale's the big issue here. And especially because Aaron Ramsdale is a young keeper. He was signed as a young keeper, ostensibly because they wanted him to improve. So him making a few mistakes last season should have been like, uh, okay, this is your stuff to grow on. And instead, there's a new keeper in the net. Obviously, Kai Havertz now. I I think, you know, he's had a decent run of form uh, over the last sort of month and a half. But for 65 million, you would want more than a guy who's had five good games out of 19. Um, and I wonder maybe if having sort of a few subs here and there and maybe putting that money into a, a striker w- would have suited Arsenal better. 
I also think just tactically, this sort of change now to a more heavily possession-based side makes them really, really predictable. Every team that plays Arsenal, and both Fulham and West Ham did this, know exactly how to play against them. Sit back, Arsenal will knock it around in your box all day, but never take like a dangerous shot, and they'll have a stat like the 30 shots they had against West Ham, which Arteta will sort of point to, but none of those shots are really threatening. And then you can spring on the counter-attack, get him behind, because Zinchenko will be out of position, or they played Kivior and Tommy Astley there recently, this inverted fullback thing seems to, to not be working anymore. And you'll score and you'll win. And they have to now, before they play Palace on the 20th, really reevaluate whether it's worth sticking to this style of sticking it out or whether it's time to go back to what worked last season and give up this sort of new possession-based, we're going to dominate the game, but also we're not going to score any goals football. Yeah, I think um, all, all good points. I think the over-reliance on Saka was clear last year and it's it's also very much the case this year. He started 19 of the 20 games that they've played so far. He very rarely gets subbed, less than half of the time. And a lot of the time, you know, Arsenal look to him. I actually think that, well, you're right that you would expect more from Kai Havertz for the amount of money that they paid for him. He has at least given them a new dimension to their attack because you say there that everyone knows how to defend against Arsenal. But that's true. That's because they only have one real style of playing. And it's to allow their their world-class players to play world-class football. And Kai Havertz at least adds an extra dimension of being able to be more of an aerial threat going into the box. And I would hope to see potentially some more tactical formations and um, like ideas come out of, of that. You know, maybe playing Kai Havertz as further up as like a, a second striker in a 4-2-2. Um, maybe starting him as a striker like he did sometimes back in the Bundesliga. Um, having him do more dovetailing um, and, and just using that as a, as a fourth man to mix it up and hopefully, again, um, sign someone else in the window that can continue to add more dimensions to what is at present a fairly one-dimensional uh, team going forward. It is a pretty one-dimensional team. And I think one of the things now that... I, I, sometimes we see this, whether it's sort of the back three and the back four change, things that sort of get a bit outdated. And I think this inverted fullback thing that Arteta seems really insistent to do with Arsenal seems to have maybe run its course I think it's not been helped by the fact that Zinchenko has been in really poor form but he's been persisting with it even when there's not like Zinchenko is a midfielder who's been jammed in at left back so that he can step into midfield and that worked really well at times last season but the problem now is Zinchenko is in really poor form he's also not massively quick so he gets caught out and worse than that even Zinchenko didn't play in the last couple of games so Mikel Arteta is now trying to get players like Jakob Kivior and Tomiyasu to step into midfield which is not something they're particularly suited to do (laughs) Um, and we've seen how Arsenal can get exploited it's you know two passes um and you can completely break them down. Funnily enough, actually, um, and you, you sort of mentioned Kai Havertz bringing a new dimension to Arsenal, and he definitely does do that in terms of aerial threat. One thing he maybe lacks is what Granit Xhaka had last season, which is when Zinchenko was stepping into the midfield a lot of the time, Granit Xhaka was sort of coming back to fill that role, whereas Kai Havertz is very much not asked to do that. He's sort of looking ahead with his back to, or with his sort of face facing the goal, and so he's not filling in sure. for those positions, which means that people can get him behind. So, it's not crisis mode at Arsenal right now, but I think, you know, I, I was sort of hearing the alarm bells even after a 2-0 win at Brighton. Um, and you would hope that Mikel Arteta is hearing the alarm bells after their two consecutive losses, because if they keep on this way, you get the sense it might be a fight for top four at best um, and not any of the nice shiny silverware. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably a good time to leave Arsenal and maybe add Tottenham into the equation. And I want to kind of cast your mind maybe 10 games into the future, played about 30 games. Do you think that Arsenal will still be in the top four? Do you think that Spurs are going to naturally overtake them with a better run of form than Arsenal have been having? Or do you think that Arsenal will rally? Like Almost, you kind of have to say, with or without um, a signing because you can't rely on Arsenal making a good signing in January. Um, so yeah, well, what are your predictions as we look towards the second half of the season? All things being equal, I would say that Spurs will probably be ahead of Arsenal by in 10 games time. I mean, you look at the first sort of eight, nine games of the season and how well they were playing then. And they've managed to obviously drop off a little bit, but sustain a good enough level to be still in the mix, even without a James Madison or a Van de Ven and with Romero picking up injuries and red cards uh, every 15 seconds. So, uh, yeah, I think when Tottenham have some of those players back, like are we not supposed to imagine that Tottenham become a real force again when they've got some of those key players back in the 11? Conversely, Arsenal, who, yes, are missing some players like Thomas Partey and Urien Timber, and Urien Timber certainly looked good in the in the run-up, those aren't going to solve problems that Arsenal have. Like, Urien Timber, although he looked great in preseason, is not going to suddenly score 15 league goals. Um, whereas on Spurs' <laughs> side... They've been a bit shaky at the back. Van der Ven is going to come back in. I think Romero's injured till March. Um, but where they might be lacking some attacking potency, I think Richarlison's found a bit of form, but Madison's going to be coming back in. Human Son obviously is away in January, which is a huge uh, impact on them. But I-, I think, honestly, on the strength of everything that we've seen so far this season, probably, yeah, Spurs will be ahead in 10 games' time. Mm, it'd be interesting to see. As you say there, definitely... The biggest blow to either team will be Son leaving for the Asian Cup. Just running my mind through the team and thinking about any potential AFCON players that might miss out that would really damage them. Maybe one or two, but but I don't think anything too dramatic. I think Son will be the, the major one. Uh, for Tottenham, I mean, there's there's Yves Basuma well, f- and for either. For either team, for Arsenal, uh, it's really only uh, Thomas Partey. I guess Takahiro Tomiyasu as well. Tomiyasu. Although Thomas Partey, I think he's not been named in the squad uh, because of injury. Uh, El Nenny, not really massively impactful for them. Tomiyasu can be key, but uh, I think, as I mentioned, Timber coming back will probably ease that load. But yeah, I think there's some clubs, there's one club in particular I want to mention that's being absolutely hit hard uh, by AFCON and the Edge of Cup. I don't think Arsenal one of them. Spurs definitely are and I think losing Son for a team like Spurs you lose not only his goals and his creativity but you also he's, he's the club captain after all um, so it's going to be interesting to see how they react to that but I think the fact that you're going to have someone like a Madison coming back in Richarlison seems to have he's got five in his last five Richarlison which he's done quite quietly um, I think that's going to really that's help true. sort of paper over the cracks that would have otherwise been if Son had left earlier in the season I think they'd be a lot more in crisis mode because I think there have been enough players here who've sort of stepped up and shown that they can shoulder their their sort of share of the burden like I think it would be a lot more disastrous for Arsenal to lose Saka for example than it is. is is that true? Well I guess it's just what you were saying Arsenal depend on Saka for everything I think Spurs depend on Son for a lot but more and more players have come out this season and shown that they can sort of shoulder the burden as well yeah, I think I think that is true. Um, quickly, just to mention, because I don't think we said it right at the very beginning, um, both the AFCON and the Asian Cup will roughly run from the middle of January to around the 10th, 11th of February. So there'll be about a, a month and a bit's worth of games that will be missed. 
That's that's a good note. I mean, it was also worth noting just on top of that that we are missing uh there's no more premier league games until sort of like the 20th 21st of january so the first couple of weeks of the uh the uh, the african cup of nations and the asia cup or the first week at least is sort of not missing anything anyway so there, there will be some games missed some people might miss three or four games some people might miss five or six games but um it shouldn't well, I suppose we'll see on the, during the run in how much it's going to affect certain teams. There's another team, obviously, probably the next team we should look at, um, who are top of the table. We're only now just getting round to them, so sorry, Liverpool fans. Um, top of the table on 45 points. Another, uh, you know, recipient of some difficulty uh, because of the international tournaments, that being that uh, Mohamed Salah is going off to... Uh, to play in the AFCON. Also, Wataru Endo is going off to play in the Asian Cup. He's been quite a key player for them. All that said... Um, mm-hmm. a really, really good performance to you know hang up the hang up things now until until the twentieth or the twenty first. Recording a record amount of XG against Newcastle, seven point two zero, which is the highest XG that's been recorded since since these records started happening. I want to talk about Newcastle a little yeah. bit later, so we won't focus on them for now. But Liverpool, they look like they are back to their sort of nineteen twenty glory and. While you still have players like Darwin Nunez, uh, I think he had like two XG in this game and didn't score. Um, but he's getting in the positions and he's obviously not, you know, a touch on it on a mano or something like that. But Liverpool are clicking again and they're finding a way for that front three to work, even in the absence of a player like Sadio Mane. Yeah, um, very true. Uh, I think that oh, well, they've been fantastic. Um, and it's interesting to say, I think we should do probably a, a longer episode on the AFCON and the Asian Cup, even just to, to kind of talk about um, where we can watch it, where, how the, the storylines is going to be fun. Um, but yeah, Liverpool will be hit massively hard by the the loss of Mohamed Salah because I think that where you've got to recognise it's different from 2019-2020, despite the fact that they have returned to an exciting kind of brand of football, is that there is much more of a reliance on Mohamed Salah than there ever was when... Um, Sadio Mane was in the team. Um, when you cast your eye down the, um, you know, the, the Premier League goal-scoring table, Mohamed Salah is the only Liverpool player in the top fifteen um, to to have, you know, and and he's top um, by some way. Darwin Nunez has six assists to Salah's eight, so that's that's pretty good in terms of creation. But for goal scorers, there's just no one that is doing it anywhere nearly as consistently as Mohamed Salah and. It should be a real concern, and it's unfortunately come at the wrong time because they've really started to kick into gear after a pretty good but but inconsistent start to the season. Um, a lot of players have been clicking, uh, and without this tournament, uh, I think they would probably be in a, a really good place to challenge for the title. As it is, I think that this might well come as a, a disruption at, at exactly the wrong time. It may well, and you are exactly right there, that Mohamed Salah, his role has even changed to what it was in the past. He used to be, well, two two things. That Firstly, he used to just be like a pure goal scorer, and he seems to have added a lot more creation to his game this season, um, which is maybe sort of part of not having to, not being able to rely on someone on, on the other wing as much. But also, yeah, it all has to come through him, because back in the day, it was like, oh, I'm going to double mark Mohamed Salah. What's this? Sadio Mane is having an absolute blinder. We're getting torture. Like, a lot of the time in that team, you never knew which one was going to have the absolute blinder. More often than not, it was Salah, but when you've sort of fully committed there and you took your eyes off someone else, that was always going to punish you. Whereas now, when Salah leaves... 
there's a few players who are having decent seasons, but as you mentioned there, no one in the top 15 in, in terms of goal scoring. So I think players like Luis Diaz, uh, Diogo Yota, Cody Gakpo, Darwin Nunez are all solid. They will definitely miss Mohamed Salah because he's so he's like two levels above every other option. Do I think that they'll be fine in spite of that? Yeah, I, I probably do. Um, I think they are just finding a lot of good form anyway. I think their defence is a lot more industrious, not just in terms of keeping clean sheets, but we talked a little bit about it a few weeks ago, sort of breaking up player in high areas in the pitch, becoming really devastating in transitions. Um, I think, you know, players like um, Gerald Quanza, who's come in and been like quite good, surprisingly, when we all thought Matip's ACL was going to be a, a, a massive loss. Obviously, Trent Alexander-Arnold is having one of his good seasons. Well, he's always having a kind of good season, but he's having a really, really good season rather than, look at me, I got two assists, but I also conceded two goals at my near post. Um, he's just doing the former, <laughs> really, at the moment. So, yeah, I think Liverpool will miss him. If I were to look 10 games in, into the future, I, I still think it'll be between them and City probably come the end of the season. Well, I, I'm going to disagree with you. I think that, you know, to have a player who's the top of the, the charts for both goals and assists is way too over-reliant and he's going to be gone. We also, if, you know, history is anything to go by... Two years ago, we saw Mohamed Salah really struggle to find any sort of form after um, the AFCON. Granted, his team lost in the final and Egypt, we might well talk about next week, but have a pretty good chance of winning the AFCON this year. And that might well see him behave completely differently when he returns. But there's got to be, you know, in terms of, um, you know, likelihood, there's got to be a strong likelihood that they will not look the same without him and that he will not look the same when he returns. I do think that, as, as you say there, there are other players that are coming through. And I think if ever there was a time for Darwin Nunez to step up, it's absolutely going to be in the next couple of months. I think that he's having a much better season, obviously, than he did last year. Typically, he likes to, to take a little while to, to bed into his teams. And it looks like he is now pretty well bedded in. His English is a lot better. He's got six goals, sorry, five goals and six assists. And yeah, I, I think um, I think there's a good chance that Liverpool will still be in, in contention. I think that they will not have top spot necessarily in in 10 games time. I think it'll be closer. They'll maybe be second or third. Um, I, I actually, to be honest with you, wouldn't be surprised if it's all really to play for in 10 games time. I hope it'll all be to play for in 10 games time. We could well see just a, a massively impressive run of form from City. I think it would have to be City if it was going to be anyone. But my sense is that it's going to be these five competing right to the very end, or at least, you know, two or three competing right to the very end. I hope that's the case. It does kind of feel a bit, I think we've used this analogy before, but a bit like sort of a Marvel post credit scene where they unveil like the bad guy from the next movie, that that, that city right now, <laughs> Liverpool are like, oh, we're so good. Like, thanks for the five point cushion, like, or the three point cushion. Oh, uh, Salah, like, off you go to Afghan. And City are there, like, De Bruyne is coming out of his cryogenic ice chamber, like, Haaland is bandaging up his foot. It's like, oh, God, they're about to go and do their usual trick, aren't they? Um, <laughs> I, I want to talk about, uh, well, Villa next and then City next. But before we do that, I just want to take a quick departure from the Premier League just to talk about something that happened down uh, in the Championship. That was uh, Wayne Rooney sacked as the Birmingham City manager. Um, Wayne was hired uh, when the new owners came in. Um, and weirdly at the time, John Eustace, the Birmingham City manager, uh, sort of had the team in sixth, uh, which is quite good for Birmingham City, who haven't been that high consistently for, for quite a while. 
they sacked him and they brought in Wayne Rooney because they sort of wanted the star power. And Wayne Rooney has had two wins in 15, nine losses, and has taken the team from sixth in the championship to 20th in the championship. Um, I wanted to flag this for just a quick reason to just throw to you. Obviously not just to highlight the fact that Wayne Rooney is a big name um, who has sort of lost his job here, but We've had a lot of discourse in recent weeks, uh, particularly uh, from the likes of Joey Barton, sort of talking about how only elite men's players can talk about the game and can sort of analyse the game and have the right to sort of have a look at it. And it just struck me looking at this, you know, this sacking and sort of people, a lot of people were making the joke of like, oh, like Birmingham might go for Lampard now. And it's like you think about some of the brilliant players that, you know, I'm thinking specifically of those three, Rooney, Lampard and Gerrard, that were absolutely like world, world class players, top of their game, but could not manage their way out of a paper bag. And it's like, and, and then you sort of take a step further and you compare that to people who either weren't footballers or who weren't footballers at the top level, like your Klops and your Mourinho's and, and your Wenger's. And you think, do you have to be an elite men's player to have an understanding of the game, Joey Barton? Because those guys seem to not. They seem to be able to play it really well, but they don't seem to be able to manage it very well. <laughs> um, no, definitely not. I think it's, it's one of those things where like, it obviously helps. To be able to understand what it, it, was, it was like to play as a footballer obviously massively helps. And to be able to command presence in the dressing room like some of these top players, ex-players, can do from the get-go obviously helps. However, you, you can't draw kind of a straight line between how good, quote-unquote, a footballer was and how good he will be as a manager. I think... The three that you've picked there, I think, are three quite good examples because I think that while, you know, undoubtedly three unbelievably good players, I don't think anyone is putting them in their top 10, like, smartest players of all time. And that's not to say that they're not clever people. <laughs> it's to say that if you look at the, the players that have gone on to really, you know, have a good go at managing, um, the most obvious one is Chabi Alonso who's doing fantastically in the Bundesliga. He was always touted as an intelligent player. And in interviews, everyone always said his old manager's like, he is going to be a great manager. And uh, I think maybe another good example, you could, you could potentially argue someone like Xavi, although he has maybe had a little bit of an easier time of it, given that he kind of bounced straight from Asia to the, the head job of Barcelona. Um, but I, I think that, you know, those players are on in my opinion, at least, a slightly different level of kind of tactical acumen. If you were to ask me who I think is going to be a better manager between Cristiano Ronaldo and Sergio Busquets, I'm always going to pick Sergio Busquets. I don't think Cristiano Ronaldo would be a particularly good manager at all because he'd be too arrogant. Um, and I don't think he would, you know, he'd command respect, but I would worry about his ability to like lead tactically. Um so yeah, I don't think it's not just about how good a player is. It's also about the type of player that they are. Um, Thiago Motta is maybe another good example. I don't know in in Serie A. Um, but yeah, that seems to be my, the case. This like you know, two game game reading number six, basically, or like you know someone who's not necessarily six, someone who sits in the middle of the park. Because like for all I say there, that I mean, there yeah, kind of. I mean, who else? Who else was holding midfielders? Um, Pep Guardiola and and I think yeah. Jurgen Klopp was also a DM. 
Well, so, so Pep Guardiola, Ancelotti was a little bit further forwards, but like there are examples of ex-players who are who've gone on to be brilliant managers. Obviously, Johan Cruyff, uh, Pep Guardiola, as you mentioned, Ancelotti. But it's just funny that like there's been this discourse that some people have been getting involved in about like, oh, the only way you can be like someone who understands the game is if you have played the game. And it's like if you had a football knowledge, like tactics. Oh, well, what am I even saying? If you had like a game between a Jose Mourinho managed team and a Steven Gerrard managed team, like who's going to win nine times out of ten? Oh yeah, no, it, it's it's completely different. And you know, Rafael Benitez is another great example. Um, who else was going to say Maurizio Sarri? He he obviously I was just about to say sorry. His, the cigarette eater had had his foibles, but he was a player that didn't even play any football. Um, you know, even Rafa Benitez played football for his university, I think. Um, but you know, Mauricio Sarri was a banker or, or something um, equivalent. And yeah, it, it's, you're going to get a range of um, people who really understand the game from deep analysis and loving the analysis side of it. Then you're going to get people who are, who are footballers and understand the game itself. You're always, always going to have both. Um, but one does not guarantee that they will be a good manager. Well, it's an interesting lesson we've learned here today because I sort of came to you with the theory, with sort of just the thing that, you know, top players aren't always top managers and sometimes ordinary blokes off the street can be top managers. But I like that you've sort of added to that, that like top players will be top managers, dot, 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 on the proviso that they played in a very specific role. <laughs> like if, if they were sort of like... <laughs> A, a number six who did a lot of scanning and a lot of like intelligent passes and, and you know, was like always had a bit of pause at then they're going to be a great manager. Um, and if not, they're going to be. Well, hey, the other one we've been stupid not to mention so far, Mikel Arteta. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mikel Arteta, although who, who knows at this moment in time. That's a fair point. No, I obviously don't have to be <laughs> CDMs, but you know, I, I think that is the, the position that most naturally lends itself to reading the game, understanding the game, having a really high, what we might call football IQ. And I think that that is, you know, often what is missing from some of these players that try to become managers is that some people don't have the, you know, the, the strength of personality. Some people don't have the, the tactical understanding. Didier Drogba was a great example of someone who has massive personality, top class footballer. I don't think he would be a very good manager at all. Let's move next into a bit of useless trivia before we get back to the Premier League. Um, although this one that I've got for you is to do with the Premier League. It's quite quite an amusing little series of stats about um, Aston Villa's John Duran, who some may not be familiar with because he is, uh, you know, he comes on, he's more, mostly a sub player, but he's got a really interesting series of stats. He's scoring the most goals per 90 out of all Premier League players this season at 1.22 goals per 90. He's also completing the most shots per 90 at 4.9 out of all Premier League players. What makes it even funnier is that he is also completing the most fouls per 90 at 5.5 out of all Premier League players. So he's basically a super sub who he comes on, fouls around and has shots and they, they largely go in. <laughs> what a god. You, you, know, you know how we talked a couple just, of weeks ago about like, how there's comes increased on chaos. He comes on the most productive player. Sorry? You know how we talked a few weeks ago about like the increase in chaos in, in football. I think John Duran is like the yeah, model yeah. footballer for that argument. He's just like pure ca- comes Perfect. on, fouls everyone, scores a goal, and then leaves. No explanation, leaves. I, I'm I'm here for it. I think <laughs> I think that's brilliant. Um, that's maybe put him in contention for my favourite player of the season. I didn't even know that. 
Yeah, isn't that crazy? And like, you wouldn't think that the same player, you would think that like the player to have the most shots would be a forward, like like John Duran. But then to be a forward and to have the most fouls per ninety is so funny. Yeah, that's <laughs> that is uh, wow. Um, are there, is there anyone close, or is he just way out in front? Uh, he's way out from the second most amount of fouls. So he's on 5.5. The second is uh, Sasa Kalajic uh, from Wolves, who commits uh, 3.4 per 90. So he's he's doing almost double. It's it's impressive. It's truly impressive. Um, there you go. Very good. Um, there you go. Well, I have a fun piece of useless trivia for you this week. Um, which is going back to goalkeepers um, and more specifically goal scoring goalkeepers. Um, I think the the most famous name in goalkeeper goal scoring annals is the name of Rogerio Senni, who scored a very impressive, I believe, 129 goals um, in over 1,200 appearances. Um, but he also scored 43 penalties in that. Did you know that there is another goalkeeper? Um, by the name of Jean-Louis Chilavert, who didn't quite score as many goals. He got 67 goals across his career. Um, 59 of them were free kicks, though. Wow. I think um, I think they both like to... Because I think Senny scored a, a few free kicks as well, which is just quite funny. Senny scored a lot like of free kicks as well. Sorry, it does not make sense, because like, uh, uh, certainly on the penalties aspect, because like, a keeper can probably the player in your team that can hit it hardest most of the time, unless you're like John Arnorisi playing. So that makes sense. But free kicks is such a funny one. It, it is extremely funny. What, what's also so impressive is that he was never particularly prolific throughout his career, except for one club um, called Velez Sarsfield, um, where in t- 266 games, he scored 36 goals, which is a record of more than like one in 10 games which is dramatically more impressive than Rogerio Senni's overall statistics. Yeah, I mean, if your keeper's getting, you know, one in 100, you're pretty happy with him. That's more than you're expecting. So one <laughs> like in 10. Like more than one in 10? Like more than one in 10. <laughs> that's, that's quite it's like one in. That's like one in nine. <laughs> like some, some, some good strikers have done worse in the Premier League. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Well, let's go back to the Premier League. Um, I want to talk about two more teams in that mix at the top, and then I want to take a little trip down to the bottom of the table. Aston Villa entered 2024 in second place with the second most points of any team in the year of 2023. We've sort of kept bringing that stat up because it keeps being true, which is quite impressive. Um, They have had challenging results, um, but the same this season has been true of every team. Are you still of the mind that they won't finish top four, Rupert, or are you starting to soften that position? I wait. They won't finish top four. Did you say? Or that? Or that? Okay. So I think I think you actually came around to that. Are you still of the mind that they won't be in with a chance to win the league? <laughs> that this couldn't be a potential Leicester season. You know, we just talked I think about I have Liverpool. To. Salah going off to Afcon. As it stands, I'm going to say they're sort of the. Uh, I think they will finish the season in third place. Ooh, okay, interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, the thing that you've been keen to mention, which is worth mentioning again, is obviously the European commitments. But at the moment, I mean, they've got John Durant to come off the bench and go mental. Villa, uh, I think... I mean, at what point... What what do you reckon Unai Emery is thinking right now? Because 
what would be more what would be better for Villa? Would it be to win the Conference League? Or would it be to finish like second and play in the Champions League next season? Second or third or whatever, and, and also try and win the whole thing. So what's the what's the comparison? I mean, if they're winning the conference league, where are they finishing in the table? Well, or is it just I, I more know, like I... are you not are you not trying to be determinist about it? You're more just like, where should he put his eggs? Yeah, where should like when we get to sort of pinch points during the season where maybe there's a quarterfinal tie and there's two Premier League, difficult Premier League fixtures either side of it, it should he rest some players? Should he sort of leave Ollie Watkins out or should he go like, oh, you'll play all three? I think that if he gets to the end of February and he's a couple of points off top place, he should drop absolutely everything and only go for the league. Nice. I agree. I, I, I also think so. I'm, I'm a real uh, death or glory kind of guy, so, so I agree. I think that's where Villa should be. I just think Villa will not win the league if they are split um, competition-wise. I think that if they're trying to rest players, that is where they will they will slip up and it will be a couple of points here and there, but it will be enough because I don't think Villa are good enough that they will win the league by more than five points. That being said, you know, you look at what the winning the Conference League has done for like West Ham and it's, you know, it's a European trophy. It's obviously the third tier European trophy, but it's a European trophy nonetheless. Obviously, Villa uh, have some <laughs> some slightly better trophies uh, from back in the day, but still, that'd be great for the fans to, to get a continental trophy. And you would have to say that they probably have a better chance of winning that than the Premier League. Although I say that, they're currently second. That's true. I mean, a couple of different things, obviously. Firstly, West Ham were nowhere near the top of the table. I think they were actually quite comfortably in the bottom half of the table mm, um, when they won their European trophy. And this it is not produced a dramatic, you know, th- to be fair, actually, I take that back. It has been quite a, a, an improved season for them, but they're still five points off the Europa League spot in fifth. So it's not that, you know, them winning that very impressive European competition has led to them being immediately kind of challenging for European spots. Like they've not dramatically bounced from that win to to like domestic success. Mm. No, it's, it's a good point. But, but as uh, you sp- like- they are now sixth. And where did they finish last year? Weren't they like 16th? Yeah, they were like... They were just above the sort of relegation battle, but they were in that sort of in that yeah. general. So, region. so maybe to be fair, so maybe to be fair, that's not fair on them. I mean, if that's a if they finish the season with like a ten place improvement, that is quite dramatic. Um, but I think it's 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 different enough from where Villa are at in that they are second that it's it's not as comparable. Um, and I feel like if I was a Villa fan, I, it's so hard to tell. Obviously, I want I want trophies, but I also would love, in terms of law, in terms of storytelling, you know, the fact that you know you got really close to winning the league like that year, or or maybe even push them to the final day. And I think that in terms of general progress as a club, might like stability wise, my instinct is always that domestic success and doing it over the course of an entire season puts you on firmer footing than winning a European tournament in terms of just building and trying to maintain or improve on the position that you're at. Yeah, and, and also, obviously, if you win the Conference League, you just get to play in the Europa League the next season. Whereas if you win, if you finish top four, you get to play Champions League this season. So I think a lot of the players will probably be thinking about that as well. Um, 
and be going, oh, you know, I want to be playing against, say, the Real Madrids. Um, okay, well, that's Villa. I Let's think it's also quickly... realistic, though, that they could do both. I think they could finish in the they top could... four and win. They could, they could do both, which is uh, quite quite a bizarre thing to be to be saying about a team that, like, in recent memory, we were like, mm, they're going to go back down. Um, let's. Uh, I just want to touch quickly on City. Not a huge amount to talk about, except for the fact that despite their sort of bad start, they are just five points off the top with a game in hand. They are, I believe, the only team in the Premier League who uh, is it right? No, I think Newcastle maybe as well. But I think City and Newcastle are the only two teams in the entire Premier League who don't have a single player going away to AFCON or the Asian Cup, uh, which obviously gives City a massive advantage uh, with regards to, you know, they're not losing their Salah equivalent or or, or their um, their Heung-Min Son equivalent. They're just going to have them their, those players coming back into the team uh, in, in De Bruyne and Haaland. So I don't want to spend too long on what we sometimes suspect to be a bit of an inevitability, but... It's all lining up for City <laughs> for them to, to get the top spot back. It's uh yeah, it's it's starting to look a little frightening. I think um, you know, in, in recent game weeks, they've played pretty badly. They've still won games, like beating Luton 2-1. Um, I think that it's starting to I think I think like it's starting to rumble, you know? Um they're starting to pick up potentially a little bit of pace. And you know, I think they've won four of their last five games and drew the other one, which, you know, for, for anyone in the top four, especially when you look at the fact that they're not losing any players, should be a real warning sign. Yeah, no, it definitely should. Let's go to the bottom of the table then. I want to talk about uh, some of the relegation candidates yes. because while we still have the three teams occupying 20th, 19th and 18th place... Um, there are some contenders emerging to take position off those three teams that we saw thought for a long part of the season weren't going to be sort of sort of shifted from those spots. I want to start with Brentford because I've got a question for you. Um, Brentford have lost five games in a row and will be one of the most heavily affected teams from the Afghan and Asian Cup. Um, they'll be losing Sam Angodos, Yuan Wisser, and Frank Onyeka to the two tournaments, uh, as well as uh, their player. Uh, Kim Ji-soo, who I don't think has played uh, for them yet, but just another squad player uh, that they'll be missing out. In terms of those other three players, Onyeka, Wissa and Godos, not typically necessarily first-team players, specifically, you know, someone like a Wissa has really had a change in his role because of the injuries, but a lot of these players, I think Godos and Onyeka have started about seven or eight games each. Wissa has started 18 out of 19 possible games this season, and in light of the injuries to players like Brian and Bermo and uh, the suspension of Ivan Tony has been really, really important. Brentford are not going to have any of that. I think the last game they started, Johan Wisser and Keen Lewis Potter, and now they're going to have to start Keen Lewis Potter and Neil Morpé. Um... Here's my question to you. With all those players gone, but Ivan Tony sort of coming back, and beyond all of those players being gone, Brentford in the form that they are in, if you're Brentford, if you're Thomas Frank, do you hold on to Ivan Tony and hope that he alone can do enough to dig the team out of the quagmire? Or do you look to sell him and take that risk to get in enough money to try and rebuild the squad in other places? Hmm. Um... I think that if I was Thomas Frank, I would see the return of Ivan Tony as coming at the perfect time. You mentioned that he's coming back. He's coming back on January 17th. That's less than a week after um, the AFCON and the Asian Cup starts. And 
I think that his return will be as far as I can tell. And as far as, you know, every time he came back from an injury or anything like that um, last season, a dramatic uptick in the vibe around the club. Um, you know, how well everyone else plays. I think that Brentford with Ivan Tony play completely differently. And I think that if you're looking at Tony as an asset to sell, you probably wouldn't want to sell him after he's just had eight months out of football. I think you'd want to have him come back in, hit the ground running, you hope, and then try and sell him potentially in the summer or maybe even towards the back end of January. I think that's more dangerous, obviously, because you would need to secure um, you know, other players to, to bring in. But I think that if you look at Brentford's season as, in my opinion at least, in part, trying to survive for long enough until Ivan Tony gets back and can play football again, they've done it. You know, They have stayed out of the relegation zone. They're currently, as you say, I think 16th. And they've got their best player by far coming back very soon. I think you would keep him and, you know, that, that option to sell is not going away anytime soon. Your, your lose condition, I think, your, your most likely way to, to lose, like staying in the Premier League, would be to sell him and then try and buy some players to replace him, have them not do very well and, and get relegated. I think that Tony is key to confirming that they will stay in the league. I, I hear you. I mean, I, and I think I broadly agree. The, the few counterpoints I would make are, you know, you mentioned there the, the best time to sell him would be let him hit some form and then sell him in the summer. Obviously, if they go down, suddenly that goes massively down and it's a lot harder for a club that's been relegated to hold on to their players. It's putting a lot of expectation on, we talked about, you know, Christopher and Kunku uh, and, and, and this a few weeks ago. Obviously, Ivan Tony's a little bit different having been very used to the league, having scored 20 league goals all season. But still, for a player that has not played a game for sort of six months and has only been training for like the last two, expecting him to come into a team that elsewhere is completely malfunctioning and expecting him to completely lift the entire team up and the performances up is quite a lot of burden to put on him and I as much as I think he's a great player I don't know that he'll necessarily be able to do that on his own whereas if you're Brentford and you look at say a Chelsea who you know have deep pockets and really need a goal scorer and you can go hey Todd 100 million and Ivan's all yours you might be able to pick up a lot of little bits and pieces here and there that actually made the overall squad better than having someone who is a brilliant goal scorer but that's not a lot of use if he's not getting any service or it's not a lot of use if Brentford can't keep the ball because they're being completely overrun in midfield or it's not really good if the defence <laughs> conceding three so Ivan Tony's brace counts for nothing. I think it's a fair point but I think that the the likelihood, you know, if you're looking at the, just the chances of both those things, either keeping Tony and hoping that he is enough to turn the season around and guarantee them staying up or selling Tony and hoping that new players will do that. It, I think it's much more likely that keeping Tony and hoping that he will do well enough to keep them up will happen. I, I think that we've seen it malfunction so many times when a team in the bottom half or maybe even the bottom quarter tries to put a bunch of money into new signings. It works so rarely. Um, you know, for every, maybe I guess you would say, for every someone like for every Nottingham Forest, there's a there's a five Fulhams or... Um, you know, think things 
people, clubs to that nature. Um, and I obviously mean Fulham of a few years ago and not the Fulham of now. Um, I think that it's way more of a risk to try and, even if you can sell Tony for that much money, to try and bring new players in and blood them halfway through a season when they don't even get a pre-season and have them try and spark uh, you know, an uptick in form in a really struggling team. I think that puts way more pressure on, on them than just asking a player who is the talisman of the team already, the top goalscorer already, the best player already, to do what he's been doing for several years. Mm, yeah, it, it's a fair point. I mean, I, my only last sort of thing would be, you mentioned there that for every team that does the big sale and replacement well, there's five that do it wrong. And I would agree with that. The only thing I would say is that there are, t- if you were going to back a team to do it well, like Brentford and, you know, Brentford, them and Brighton have been really, really renowned for their ability to pick up talents for marginal costs. And I think if you were going to give one team 100 million in a shopping trolley to go and buy some some squad replacements and bolster them, I would back Brentford and Brentford scouting department and, you know, Thomas Frank's talent ID more than I would some other teams, um, certainly. So I do agree that's, it's quite a high risk situation. It is a high situation. Are there any players that you can think of off the top of your head, though, from those two teams that have done it from January and hit the ground running? And there may well be. I just can't. I can't think of any. Not not enormous. I mean, like the one that's jumping into my head now from one of those two teams is um, Leandro Trossard to Arsenal last January. But that that was like a thirty million pound deal or something. That wasn't like a mega deal. All the other mega deals have been like specifically the Brighton mega deals have been. Um, during the summer, so there has been time for a preseason and everything. So, so that is a good point. Um, but I don't know if if you were gonna pick a team to pull it off, it'd be one of those two. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Um, but I think that you you've got to see um, you've got to see players signing in January as almost a different beast to ones being signed in um, in August. And I think that that's why a lot of the time you pay through the roof. Not just because, you know, the the demand is greater because sometimes you really need holes to fill, but because you almost have to, like, pay over the top to get confirmed quality rather than just, you know, maybe taking a little bit more of a punt on a player that might be good, might not be, in in the, the start of the season. I, I think you need much more to be able to confirm that there will be um, a, a positive impact when you're signing someone to fill a hole. Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, Brentford, if you're listening, uh, hold on to Ivan Tony for now. Do not sell him, uh, and that's your best chance of staying up. Let's move next on to Everton, who seem to have lost the spark they picked up right after the points deduction. Uh, they've had three losses on the bounce, albeit against pretty tricky opponents uh, of City, Spurs, and, and a pretty good Wolves side. They now need to pick up results in games like the next sort of the game week 21 game at home to Villa and game week 22 away at Fulham because they've got quite a run of tricky games and I say outside of those and those neither of those are particularly easy games at the moment Everton could be looking down the barrel of quite a rough run of form and I think they're just the one point clear at the moment um, obviously having sort of really impressively hoisted themselves out of the relegation uh, zone after the initial deduction, things seem to have dried up a little bit here. Um, when you look at that fixture list, it does look quite daunting, aside from, um, mm. well, I say aside from Fulham, away at Fulham is is no no easy game to play, um, as Arsenal have just found out. Um, Everton, do you think they're maybe still in the running to go down? 
I think they're absolutely still in the running. I mean, they're only one point off 18th place. So uh, I think you'd be wild, especially when Luton have a game in hand and have been playing much better in the last five games than they have for the for the rest of the season. Maybe even the last 10 games. Um, yeah, I think um, Brentford are three points ahead of them still and have a game in hand and have their best player coming back. Nottingham Forest look like they should stay up. I don't think Palace are in any danger really at the moment. And then and then you're getting into the likes of Fulham, Bournemouth and Wolves who have all looked pretty solid this season. I think it is going to be a, looks like at least at the moment, a four team or like a four horse race um, to try and avoid relegation. And Everton are by no means out of this. Um, I, I think, you know, it's no, it's no big claim to say that Luton have been playing really well recently. Um, they pushed Chelsea right to the end um, last week. Um, they managed to beat Sheffield United in a, in a massive game. Um, they beat Newcastle 1-0. So that's they such almost... a comedy game that as well. Like Sheffield United scoring two own yeah. goals to lose the six-pointer. I mean, that was wild. Um, but I just think Luton are, re- are really looking good. And obviously I would say that as well because I'm really rooting for them to stay up. Um, I'm not particularly rooting for Evan to go, to go down. I would quite like them to stay up because I like them roughly as a club. But I, I think that Everton are absolutely still in this dogfight. Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. Well, look, you mentioned there it was sort of maybe a game of four. I would maybe also throw Brentford in there to make it five. And my final curveball, the final team I want to talk about uh, this week, Nottingham Forest. We spoke a little bit about them last time we spoke because Steve Cooper had been sacked uh, and Nuno Espirito Santo had come in. We've now seen the first three games under Nuno. Uh, initially, uh, a loss to Bournemouth, which I would argue was quite unfortunate because of a pretty harsh red card just uh, for Willie Bolly, meaning that Dominic Solanke had the absolute run of the game and, and scored a hat-trick. And what a great season he's having, by the way. Um, but bouncing back from that with two really big wins against Newcastle United and Manchester United. Huge, huge result for Forrest and showing a new lease of life, perhaps, under the new manager. Well, why then am I talking about them with relation to the relegation scrap? Well, Rupert, you may have read this or you may have <laughs> not, and I'm saying this for our listeners as well. A few new rules have come in this season, some of which we've covered, but some of which are still sort of being sort of revealed. One of which is that the new profit and sustainability guidelines have um, said that clubs have had to submit their accounts for 2022 to 23 by December 31st. Typically, they would have to submit them in May, um, but these would have to be submitted at the end of the this of the calendar year, with any breaches and subsequent charges confirmed by the end of January. The idea being is that this would allow time to apply charges to the relevant season rather than, for example, catching up the following year. So when we look uh, at an example like Everton, for example, and uh, a team like... Um, a team that went down and said that my girl, we shouldn't have gone down, Everton should have got deducted then. This is ideally sort of a, a way to quote-unquote fix that. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this in relation to Nottingham Forest is that it's come out that they could face a points deduction if found in breach of the financial fair play rules. You talked uh, there about how they had spent shed loads of cash on bringing in busloads of players Um but it may well be the case that they've overstepped the mark. There's um, there's accounts that have been submitted now and they're sort of pouring over the numbers. Um, but what's bad for Nottingham Forest is obviously because they were so recently a championship club, the amount you're allowed to overspend there is even 
dearer than the 105 million uh, they're allowed to spend when you're in the Premier League. So they're really mm. sort of on the edge of, of whether or not they're going to breach these profit and sustainability rules. And even though they're having a good bounce back, they could be the next team to find themselves getting Everton, essentially. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah, I think, did that come out today? Um, and yeah, it, it could well put them in hot water. We don't yet, as far as I'm aware, know roughly how many points they're on the hook for. But, and, and it would still be a pretty quick turnaround to, you know, have them be sanctioned within the next few months. But yeah, it's it's definitely something that's on the radar. I think probably the other thing to mention that's on the radar is that um, Everton could well still have a, a section of their 10 points overturned. Um, I believe the, the jury's still out on that one. It's looking... Not super likely, but not completely unlikely um, because, yeah, there, there have been one or two small errors in, as far as I understand it, the way that the points were counted and the way that the money was, was kind of added up to create that point deduction. Of course, of course there was. Well, that'll be one to watch. I mean, I think, as you mentioned there, it would be a massively quick turnaround for that session to happen this season, except for the fact that this was sort of, this is ostensibly the reason for this, and I can see them sort of expediting it and maybe doing a bit of a rush job to, to again, make this point that like, oh, we don't need a regulator, look how good we are at dealing with our own affairs and getting it all done in a timely manner. And much as we talked about Everton sort of being the, the sort of ones who are being made an example of, the same thing may well happen to Forrest, so that the Premier League can go, look, look, we can govern ourselves. Could well be. I think the Premier League are going to have to do some sort of of mitigating of of you know the the treatment of the the teams lower down in the table because as it stands, if they do really quickly turn around and penalise Nottingham Forest while the City one is still ongoing, even if it's completely reasonable that that would happen because of the sizes of the two um, cases weighed against the clubs, I think that. You know, the, the league operates on, at least in parts, a, a voting system that only works if the majority of the teams like, quote unquote, play ball. And there are many more teams in the league that would be concerned about, you know, dropping out of, of the Prem within the next five years than there are, you know, hoping to push for the title. So, you know, the undercarriage, by which I mean the the amount of teams that, um, would be worried about relegation is much more than 50%, I think, probably more like 70%. And I think that they're really going to have to be careful with how they treat consistently these smaller teams. Yeah, I, I do agree. I do think that's right. Although that's the very rational way to look at it. And I think the Premier League, as we've seen, you know, everyone talks about it, you know, one rule for Everton, another rule for the city of this world. Will they apply something consistently or, or will it be very much a case of, you know, we think we can get away with it with Forest because Forest don't have as much power and they won't necessarily be around for long. So they don't have as much voting share. They can't put as much pressure on us in terms of TV revenue and things like that. That's a whole other conversation that we kind of covered with the Everton thing and also is too big to, to get into now because we're kind of at time. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Eddie Howe's Newcastle and whether uh, he's heading for an exit. Um, but we actually do not have time for that this week, Rupert. It'll have to be one uh, for next week or indeed uh, the next time we see Newcastle play. For now... Uh, great to talk to you as always. 
Cam, great to talk to you as well. And I hope everyone had a lovely Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll catch you next week. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshel.